carnivore diet, you know, compared to other elimination diets, actually brings a lot more to the table. Uh, it's not just about what's being eliminated, but a lot of the things that are being provided in a carnivore diet are specifically beneficial for the gut. So when you talk about carnivore diet and gut health, uh, from your research, how long does it take for someone to essentially reset their gut health? That four to six weeks is probably gonna be enough. What I don't see is that a bunch of healthy people out of nowhere decided, oh, I'm gonna go on a carnivore diet and then say, oh, I feel so much better. I don't see that. Most of the time it's like, I don't feel well, I go on a carnivore diet, I feel better. Is that the correct perspective? It comes to those types of diets, we have to remember that a lot of the benefit that you're getting comes from what you're not eating. Right? All 8 billion of us are doing metabolism at all times. This show is about learning what metabolism is, how it affects you in every way possible, from mood and mental state to performance and energy. We are all about fine-tuning the human experience for you to achieve the best self you can be. And if you are someone who loves science, curious to know how your body works and how to optimize it, then you are in the right place. This is the HVMN Podcast. In this episode, we have Chris Irvin, who is a keto researcher, educator, and nutrition expert over eight years of, of dedicated study and practice in low-carb and ketogenic diets. Holding a master's degree in nutrition and exercise science from the University of Tampa, where Chris studied keto for athletes and disease therapies. Chris also founded The Ketologist as an educational hub for emerging keto research. His significant contributions include serving as the education manager at Perfect Keto and as president of product at BioCoach, spearheading the development of tech solutions integrating the ketogenic diet to combat chronic diseases such as prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. In this episode, we covered everything about his new book, The Carnival Reset, as well as dissecting what is the difference between carnivore diet and a keto diet, why is carnivore diet good for you, and when would you use it for autoimmunity, inflammation, and gut health. So please stay tuned and enjoy this episode. And we have Chris Irvin back onto the HVMN podcast. Thank you very much for coming back, Chris. Dr. Lat, how you doing today, brother? I'm good. Uh, it has been a little bit more than a year since you last came on to the HVMN podcast. I remember the last time we recorded, I was still in my old apartment. You made me wake up at seven in the morning. The sun still wasn't up. I had to use my ring light for my lighting. I remember that very clearly because that was the only one that was not natural light, uh, natural <laughs> lighting for, for the episode. I'm glad we so, got you a little more rest this time. A little more rest this time. This time my brain is actually awake. I can ask more, you know, pointed questions. How have you been? I've been good, man. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a crazy last year. Um, you know, been like for one, you know, fatherhood. I think was about a year in, probably the last time we spoke. So got year two down this year, which was a blast. Um, kind of got through that like next hump where he started uh, going to school a few days a week now. So kind of you know getting a little bit of of my time back, which is great. Um, and then been just using that time to do a lot of writing. So this last year for me was. I wrote some courses for um, Primal Health Coaching Institute, um, you know, kind of picked up my, my newsletter back up and then, then wrote the, the Carnival Reset book that we'll chat a little bit about today. So that's kind of been like the big thing for me. It's, you know, writing has been uh, one of those things where with being a dad and having crazy schedule and all over the place, um, writing is something that I can do on my own time whenever I want. So it's kind of fallen into like uh, a good, you know, productive use of my time. So that's how I've been feeling it. And leaving your legacy behind, obviously. Yeah, well, trying to at least. So what are the exciting topics research around your area? You know, the ketogenic diet, the carnivore, diabetes, prediabetes. What are the exciting things that are going on right now um, that you can share? Yeah, well, you know, I think the area that's been most exciting over, you know, the last year um, yeah, probably over the last year and especially in the last few months has been a lot of the, the work around keto for uh, mental health disorders uh, and brain health as well, because I, I think there's also some really interesting stuff coming out with like, um, you know, Alzheimer's and concussions and everything like that. Um, but the mental health side of thing has been really interesting this last year. You know, uh, Dr. Chris Palmer put his book out, Brain Energy. I think that was either earlier this year or last year. Uh, which I think really made a big mark and it kind of opened up people's eyes to there kind of being this opportunity 
um, for, you know, nutrition specific nutrition, but the ketogenic diet specifically to be of use for different mental health disorders. Um, and then we've seen some really crazy, you know, results with folks like if you've followed uh, the Bazuki family, uh, their son, I think Matt, his name's Matt, uh, who has, a, I believe it was bipolar disorder, seeing, you know, incredible results using a ketogenic diet um, to, to help kind of keep that in remission. And that has just opened up a lot more research. So there's a lot more universe. I've seen, you know, some preliminary data being presented at conferences over the last few months. Um, you know, things that probably aren't available on the internet yet, but should be coming, you know, over the next year. And the data has been really fascinating. And I think, you know, Dr. Georgia Ede has a book coming out. I think it's, uh, you know, I believe, believe it's, uh, oh man, change your diet, change your mind or something like that. But it's, again, it's around nutrition for mental health. So to me, that's a really fascinating area of interest, because if we look at a lot of these other uses of keto carnivore, uh, you know, carnivore is a little bit different. We can, we can talk about that separately, but for keto specifically, you know, some of the other uses of the diet, there are other ways, right? Like you can, uh, you can lose weight, not doing a keto diet. Um, you can increase your energy, not doing keto. You can improve your gut health. There's, there's a lot of things you can do, but when it comes to these mental health disorders, uh, for a lot of them, there's not a lot of great treatment options. You know, most of the treatment options are pharmaceuticals and, um, you know, in these pharmaceuticals, what we're finding is that they come with a, a pretty hefty, um, you know, tag on your health where there's, you know, they're making your metabolic health worse. Um, you know, they're putting you in situations where, you know, you may have to increase your dose over time and, and change medications frequently. And um, it's, it's definitely if, if you're somebody that falls into one of those buckets, you don't have a lot of options. And again, the options aren't great. So that's why that's most interesting to me, because keto is now emerging as, you know, not that it's foolproof, because, you know, sticking to a keto diet isn't the easiest thing in the world that is still, you know, comes with its own challenges. Um, but it's something that you can do that actually puts the patient or the individual in the driver's seat, you know, rather than, you know, you hear these stories from people who are dealing with, you know, whether it's something like anxiety all the way to like PTSD, they're, they're dealing with going to the doctor and, and not getting clear information and, you know, being put on one medication, then another one, then changing the dose and not being kind of made clear of what the side effects are with these things. Um, so, you know, these patients just don't really have a good care system. Um, and I think that's where, you know, keto is now emerging as, as something that could be really great for these folks. So that's the, been the biggest thing. And I think, like I said, over the next year, we'll see a lot more publications, actual, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about now is anecdotal. Um, but like that preliminary data is, is starting to be presented at conferences. So we'll be seeing it soon. That is such a great point. Like keto diet, as much as it is a healthy diet, um, and it's a healthy lifestyle intervention that people can use to lose weight, to be healthier, just metabolically healthy. It is a great tool, but as you said, you can use other ways. You know, if you, as long as you have calorie deficit, you eat whole foods, like you will lose the weight and you will get sort of that, that clean energy. But when it comes to therapeutic users, it's certainly a very big step forward where we don't have to fork out millions of dollars to develop a new drug to treat the symptoms and not even the cause, the root cause, and, and actually now looking at it from uh, uh, just, you know, just the diet alone being an intervention as powerful as some of these pharmaceuticals. So this is definitely an exciting area. And in fact, sometime this summer, um, a university, I can't share too much detail, a university in, in uh, Europe got a grant to actually treat 250 heart failure patients with ketone IQ for 30 days because preliminary results showed that ketones um, have got a positive result when it comes to heart attacks and heart failures because it addresses the discrepancy or the energy deficit that occurs in the heart because of any occlusion of the uh, arteries. So, um, you know, that's also another area where ketones can uh, definitely uh, play a role when it comes to any form of energy deficit. And I think you talked a lot about, about that in, in your, on your channel about, you know, just Alzheimer's being having the, the energy deficit in the brain that is caused by insulin uh, resistance or glucose deficiency and, and ketones play a big role in that. And, and I'm really excited that keto diet is being used and utilized as a tool for these therapeutic areas, because then us as HVMN and, and us providing exogenous ketones only gives you that, that flexibility to, you know, use keto diet or exogenous ketones or even augment, um, you know, using exogenous ketones as a way to augment a keto diet. So that is a very exciting news yeah. for us as well. No, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that like, 
you know, when it comes to the use of exogenous ketones, I think a lot of times we think about, um, you know, just like utilizing it in everyday life, maybe using it to, you know, I, I took some ketone IQ this morning before basketball, you know, people take it before they study, you know, different things like that. But I think there, there is a interesting use case for emergency use of those things. And, you know, heart failure could be one of them. I think another one, you know, severe TBI, you know, is, is another area where we know that, uh, you know, primary treatment option when somebody comes in with a severe TBI is to put them on a glucose strip, um, which if you kind of look at like the the pathology of a concussion um, and we look at what happens in the brain metabolically, that's not a great solution, but it's, you know, you have to do something, right? You, you have these emergency situations in which an energy deficit has presented itself and you have to, you know, figure it out. So that's really cool that that research is, <clears throat> is going on because those are two areas where, again, there's treatment options available, but they're not the best. Um, you know, we have treatment options that might be able to keep you alive, but they're going to come with some of these downstream effects that aren't great. Uh, you know, if ketones have the ability to alleviate some of those downstream effects, that'd be great. So Chris, the last time we spoke, we, we talked a lot about the keto diet and ketones in general and our understanding on metabolism of ketones. When did you start really pushing for carnivore diet? Because your new book is called the carnivore reset, uh, reset. So Tell us where this transition happened and, and what are your thoughts around it? Yeah. So, it, you know, it is interesting because even the way you kind of position that, I think is a similar way that it's been positioned on social media is that, you know, I'm either a keto guy or I'm a carnivore guy or I'm this or I'm that. Uh, and the truth is that I look at all of these diets as a tool that have certain use cases. Um, you know, carnivore has been something that's been on my radar since back in 2017 was the first time that I heard about it. I gave it a try back then, kind of when it was really starting to gain some of that mainstream popularity. You know, I think, um, you know, Jordan Peterson was on Joe Rogan and he talked about his daughter, Michaela's, um, you know, uh, autoimmune condition and how carnivore helped it. And that kind of sparked this, uh, this big rise in the diet. But, you know, at that time, I only really knew about it for like, you know, I hear these stories about the, the autoimmune side of it, but didn't really understand it. Um, but, you know, I kind of saw it more as an opportunity to just like a body composition change. It's another variation of keto. Um, you know, given the, the nature of the, the nutrients that you're going to be getting in carnivore, it probably has a positive impact on your hormones, um, but didn't really think of it, you know, for much else. And then when I tried it myself and then started looking into more of the research, I kind of started realizing that, you know, one of the best benefits of a carnivore diet can be its utilization for gut health, um, which can, you know, improve not only issues related to poor gut health, but also autoimmune conditions. Um, and that's, you know, and it's essentially, if you look at it, we can kind of go into, you know, the, the basics of it, but carnivore diet is, is an elimination diet in a sense and elimination diets we know are very effective for people who are dealing with severe gut disorders or, or even, you know, minor gut disorders. And the carnivore diet is a version of that, but the carnivore diet, you know, compared to other elimination diets actually brings a lot more to the table. Uh, it's not just about what's being eliminated, but a lot of the things that are being provided in a carnivore diet are specifically beneficial for the gut. So realizing that is kind of when I decided that, you know, this is a really good tool that sometimes gets lumped into the same thing as keto, but it's not the same thing as keto. It's very different. Um, and you know, you get, you hear a lot of people, you know, obviously the biggest difference between keto and carnivore is the fact that you're not consuming any plants. So, you know, all those vegetables and those, um, you know, leafy greens and all of that, that you hear people promoting on carnivore or on keto, you're not going to be consuming those on carnivore. So that is the biggest difference. Um, and a lot of people will say, you know, that doesn't matter. Um, you know, that we, we don't really need to cut those things out. You know, all of the talk around, plant anti-nutrients is kind of overblown is what a lot of people will say. Um, and there may be some truth to that, but what we do know is that for people who are dealing with impaired digestive health and autoimmune conditions, they do have sensitivities to even these compounds that we consider to be healthy. You know, one of the interesting things I found in my research was that even things like resveratrol and curcumin, you know, things that are, are common polyphenols, things that are commonly, you know, told that they're great for us, can actually be, uh, can trigger sensitivities in individuals who have poor gut health. So, you know, the carnivore diet is a tool that can be great for those people. Now there can be other use cases of it too. Like I use carnivore, not necessarily for gut health, but, um, you know, I just use it. I'll, I'll go through two, three weeks stints, um, to, you know, if I want to dial my calories back, I find it's really easy to do that on carnivore. Uh, if I'm trying to, you know, increase protein consumption, I'll do that. Um, Wait, why are you dialing your calories back? You are a super active person as far as I know. Well, you know, sometimes if you go into the holiday season, you have a couple of weeks where you, maybe you didn't eat so well. It's nice to, you know, have a couple of weeks of, of kind of offsetting that. I mean, you're a dad <laughs> now, you know, got to have the dad bod to follow. <laughs> you know, actually, 
side note on that, I think this one is always interesting, worth sharing. Uh, do you know that there's actually some science behind why uh, dad bods happen? I, I saw that. Did I you see saw that, that video research. I did a long time ago? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw that research about the, the, the ho different hormones that's being secreted. Yeah, so a dad will actually, uh, in response to a baby crying, they have research on this, uh, will increase their natural production of estrogen um, because it's kind of a, the goal is to make them less aggressive, um, you know, kind of thinking, you know, more in, in nature and everything like that too, like to make the dad more aggressive, make them more nurturing. Um, that's kind of the goal with it. But when you couple that with the fact that dads are getting usually not very good sleep, um, which then kind of leads to maybe poor dietary habits, not getting to the gym, you have this like perfect recipe for the dad bod. So I'm trying to fight that every single day. I, I can't let myself do, you know, it's funny when I, when I got married, our pastors made, made like a comment about like, you know, my wife's still loving me, even if I get a dad bod. And I remember that day just being like, it's not happening, not letting it happen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because I see your, your story all the time. You're like, okay, wake up, you know, five in the morning and you're going to play basketball and then you're going to go to the sauna and then, you know, do your stuff being productive. I was like, damn, you know, like, why are you cutting calories? I mean, if, if anything, you should be adding calories on. Well, so, you know, you know, one of the yeah. times that I really like to do it, though, is actually when I'm when I'm writing. So when I write books and I'm going through stints of like really um, just intense, sedentary. focused, deep work. Um, well, sedentary, too. But like, what I love about carnivore, and I've actually done the carnivore diet during both when I wrote the Keto Answers book and when I wrote the Carnivore Reset, because you don't, when you're just eating meat, uh, you don't really have a lot of hunger because you're not, you know, people talk about hyperpalatability. Um, there's not, you know, even in the most delicious cuts of meat, there's not a ton of flavor. Um, there's not a lot of sugar, you know, there's no sugar. There's not a lot of these things that will stimulate additional hunger. So, you know, my hunger, at least, and a lot of people re report the same stays in check to the point where I'm not even worried about food. So I'll go through these, you know, writing days. Like I like to rather, you know, some people like to write for a couple hours a day, every day. I like to be 12 hours a day. Like I want to be dialed in and, and really go through it. And that's when I like to do it because, you know, and the calorie deficit itself, I'm sure helps ketone production, uh, keeping the brain dialed in, but then also just not having to think about food, not, you know, two hours in when I'm in the deep work zone, you know, having to, to go eat or something like that is kind of my strategy for it. It's kind of um, like intermittent fasting. Eh? Yeah, basically. Yeah. But, you know, I find it to be a little bit easier because, you know, it's it's actually hard. Like now, you know, I'm going through a period like I'm doing carnivore now for World Carnivore Month and I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm actually trying to gain weight uh, right now. And um, it's really hard. Like I just can't I don't have the hunger to eat, um, which, you know, for a lot of people listening to this, if you're not in that boat, then that sounds great. But for somebody who's trying to gain weight, uh, not the easiest thing to do. So uh, but I also, you know, I wouldn't recommend people if you're trying to gain weight, um, you know, carnivores, not that like you can do it, you can gain muscle with it, but it's not going to be as easy as also having, you know, other food groups, um, and to kind of help get that hunger up where it needs to be to gain weight. So, uh, definitely not the the best strategy for that, but, um, really, you know, just to round it out, I think the, the biggest thing for me was that, you know, I, I find that carnivore has a use case that can be, um, it can be for everybody. Everybody can, can try it. Um, and see, you know, their own benefits from it, like some of the examples that I just gave. But the biggest thing is for those individuals that are dealing with, you know, even just the minor gut issues, like, you know, I have, I tell some stories in the book of people that I talk to, but, you know, after I eat, I feel a little bit bloated, um, you know, or, or you know, I, I wake up in the morning and I feel a little bit nauseous and just like little things like that, all the way up to SIBO, IBS, um, diverticulitis, all of these things, you know, the, the more severe digestive disorders that's where carnivore can really be helpful. And, you know, the book is the carnivore reset because that's what the carnivore diet can do. It can be a reset for your digestive health. And we could talk about what that looks like. But um, so long, long way of saying still a keto guy. Um, but now I'm seeing that the carnivore is, um, is a tool that can be helpful. And, and, you know, partially too, the reason why I wanted to write this book was to get that message out there. Because one of the things I do see happening with carnivore, similar to what happened with keto, is that as the mainstream picks it up, it becomes, you know, something that it's not. Um, and I think with carnivore, it's become like this right wing diet uh, that is for people. It's like, the, you know, it's liver king, um, you know, like just eating, you know, raw organs and, and you know, whatever. It's like it's become this really intense thing that and it's $1,200 like, um, steroids. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but really, you know, what it is, is it's a, it's a therapeutic diet. And, and we're seeing that people are seeing incredible 
um, relief from it. So that's why I feel like this need to be out there. So, so when you talk about carnivore diet and gut health, uh, from your research, how long does it take for someone to essentially reset their gut health using carnivore diet? Yeah, so it definitely depends on the, you know, not everybody's favorite answer. It depends, but it does depend on the severity of it. But the protocol that I put in place in the book um, is a six-week protocol in which, um, but it's it's a bit more aggressive. So the way that it starts is like week one, you're eating only red meat. Um, you're not even eating pork or anything else. You're eating just the, the things that we know contain almost zero, um, you know, compounds that could cause your digestive system any issues. And then, so you do that, then we incorporate other meats like uh, pork and chicken. If you want, generally speaking, I stick to red meat because I think that's the most nutrient dense, but you know, variety is key. So you can incorporate those in, and then we incorporate whole eggs because, you know, people have issues with eggs, but usually it's the egg whites. So we start with whole eggs and then we do egg whites and then we do fermented dairy and then we do dairy and then follow that's followed up with a full introduction reintroduction phase where we teach you how to start reintroducing foods so you can figure out which ones may, you may be most sensitive to or more specifically which compounds you may be most sensitive to is it high lectin foods high oxalate foods high fiber foods what are the things that are, are giving you problems so you know i think for most people that six-week protocol is going to be enough now you know for some people you know the you hear about like michaela peterson where she'll tell her story um, you know, she's, she has to stick pretty, you know, strict with it because she had more severe autoimmune conditions. So she's not really ever going back, you know, she's going to be following that way of eating, you know, for the long haul. But for somebody who you ate like crap the last year, um, you know, you ate bad during the holidays, you're noticing you got some, some, you know, gut issues going two weeks might be enough to get you back on track. Um, two weeks is typically what I do, you know, just as a, if I haven't been eating well, you know, I get back from vacation, I'll do two weeks. Um, if you're somebody who has something, you know, maybe a little bit more severe, um, like a diverticulitis or, um, you know, maybe like a moderate level of IBS, like that four to six weeks is probably going to be enough. Um, but if you're somebody that's dealing with some of those really severe issues, then it can take a while because that reintroduction phase becomes really important. And that's something that, you know, I really harp on in the book because it's not, you know, you can do carnivore for as long as you want, you know, if, you, if that's something that you want to stick with now, but most people are going to decide, hey, I want to go back to being able to eat a side salad when I go to a restaurant, you know, like I want to go back to having some of these foods. Um, but for those people, it's like if you were dealing with issues before, we want to figure out why you were having those issues. Um, so, you know, that reintroduction phase, we want to look at, you know, if, if there's any hints as to things that have been bothering you, then we start with those and you introduce one food. Typical, you know, this part of the program is a typical reintroduction phase for an elimination diet. You test a food every three days um, by itself to try to give yourself a really good understanding of what's causing the issues. If you have no issues, you keep it uh, in the diet. If you have issues, then you you remove it and potentially try again later. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, again, a long-winded way of saying that it, it does depend on the individual. But I think for most people outside of the the most severe conditions, I think somewhere in that two to six week range is going to be enough to see pretty measurable improvements. Nice. So here are my thoughts around elimination diet and just diet that fully omit a food group per se. Uh, my thoughts are if you have a certain condition that requires a certain food group to be eliminated, to be omitted from your diet, then I think that is a great way of one, identifying what the problem is and two, possibly rectifying the problem, right? But if you are otherwise healthy, I do think that just for the sake of eliminating a food group and say that it's healthy, I don't think that has scientific evidence around that. Um, so meaning to say a lot of people, I don't doubt a lot of people have reversed their autoimmune system, uh, autoimmune uh, conditions, and also improved their health by changing to a carnivore diet after they've experienced some form of, you know, uh, 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 problems or issues. And what I don't see is that a bunch of healthy people out of nowhere decided, oh, I'm going to go on a carnivore diet and then say, oh, I feel so much better. I don't see that. Most of the time it's like, I don't feel well. I go on a carnivore diet. I feel better. Is that the correct perspective of, of am I... Am I following the research right here, uh, Chris? Yeah, so I, I think that it, um, you know, again, you know, it depends. Um, but it's <laughs> it's never a popular answer, but that is always kind of the case. Um, but 
you know, I think if we look at a lot of diet, you know, any sort of diet that cuts out a food group, um, you know, we can call call it an elimination diet to to some degree. Um, you know, I think when it comes to those types of diets, we have to remember that a lot of the benefit that you're getting comes from what you're not eating, right? So like a benefit of keto is that it's not just it's not that you're not eating carbs, it's that you're not eating a bunch of sugar like you were probably having before. If somebody who's already eating a really good Mediterranean diet goes keto, they probably see less of an improvement than somebody who's eating the standard American diet and go keto, right? Um, so, you know, that there is that aspect to it for sure. Um, now, I do think that for like the healthy people, you know, if you're if you're a healthy person that's eating a, um, you know, healthy in terms of you're not experiencing digestive issues, you don't have any sort of like noticeable autoimmune conditions, um, but say you're not eating a lot of red meat, um, I do think that you're going to see a noticeable improvement from eating more red meat with things like your hormone levels, um, just, you know, everything working a little bit better from having more nutrients in your body. They're a little bit more bioavailable. So you may see some improvements there, but for sure, the most robust improvements with a diet like a carnivore diet is going to be in the people that are, you know, most severely affected and they're not operating out of like a baseline of health. Now, the one thing I will say though, the thing that makes uh, carnivore interesting for gut health um, and makes it better in my opinion than other elimination diets is, you know, the, what, what carnivore and elimination diets have in, in common is that they cut out most of the foods, um, that can cause flare ups right now. Some traditional elimination diets still keep in some things that I think should be cut out if you're really going to be serious about it, but that's kind of what they have in common. But what makes carnivore better is that meat, red meat specifically has a lot of nutrients that play a huge role in strengthening the digestive system. So if we look at our digestive system, you know, there's a lot of components to it, but two of like the bigger things to talk about is the gut microbiome and then the intestinal barrier. And the intestinal barrier is that when you hear people talk about leaky gut, you know, what leaky gut is, is that your intestinal barrier becomes weak. It becomes compromised and food particles, um, pathogens, bacteria, other toxins from your diet leak out of your digestive system into your bloodstream, triggering an immune response that can result in, you know, a systemic immune response that can result in um, anything, brain fog, uh, joint inflammation, poor mood, uh, skin issues, all of these different things. And where carnivore is really interesting is that you're getting that, you know, you're cutting everything out. So you're cutting out fiber. So if you had bad, bad, if you have bad bacteria in your gut, you know, you're going to be killing that off by not providing fiber. Um, you know, some of the foods in carnivore can actually facilitate uh, the growth of, um, of more beneficial bacteria in the gut. So you do have that evidence on that's a little bit more limited. But when we look at that intestinal barrier side of things, that's really where carnivore shines because of things like B vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, uh, collagen, tryptophan, all of these things that are found in meat play a huge role in improving, you know, whether it's the structural integrity of the intestinal barrier or, you know, improving the production of the mucus required for the mucus lining as another layer of protection on that. All of those things are improved. So that's where I think carnivore really shines because on elimination diet, you can cut everything out and you can get some benefit from that relief. But if you don't repair, if, if leaky gut was your issue, for instance, and you don't repair that and you just go back to eating those foods, your symptoms are going to come back. So that's really where I think the carnivore diet shines and where it's not just about what you're not eating, what you are eating, you know, primarily red meat, if that's where you're focusing is going to bring a lot more to the table. So what about those people who say red red meat is, you know, unhealthy and and cause heart disease? Let's put this um argument to to rest right now. <laughs> Show me the evidence is what I always say. Um yeah, I mean if you look at a lot of the evidence uh that's used to support that, it's it's epidemiological research um which I talk about a lot. And and I will say uh, we have to be careful about that because, you know, there's also a lot of people in the carnivore and keto community that use epidemiological research when it supports what they want, um, but then they don't use it. You know, they throw it out when it doesn't agree with what they say. Uh, but in general, for those you know that aren't familiar, epidemiological research is a type of research in which they follow populations of people either, um, you know, retroactively, they look in the past or they follow them going forward. And they look at things like dietary habits in this case, and then they try to relate that to um, you know, disease outcomes in this case. So when you see these studies that will say, you know, red meat consumption increases the risk of prostate cancer, or, you know, recently there was a big Harvard stance that said that uh, red meat increased uh, type two diabetes risk. Uh, and you look at these studies and what they are is again, they're following people over a period of time, having them report their diets and then assessing their, their risk of chronic disease. Some of these studies aren't even following them long enough 
So that's, this is a big thing here. So some of these studies aren't following them long enough to actually see if they develop something like heart disease or cancer. They're looking at risk factors, which, you know, as we've been learning, some of these risk factors are actually pretty weak. Like, you know, this year, there's been a lot of publications that have come out talking about LDL cholesterol as a, a standalone risk factor. And the evidence really isn't there just looking at LDL as a whole or total cholesterol. But that is what the dogmatic stance is. So if you're talking about if red meat increases LDL, then some people will say that increases your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, but you know, d does it really, we don't know. Um, but then there are studies that will actually follow people, you know, for long enough to see if they do, they have a heart attack, you know, do they develop cancer of any sort? Um, you know, the cancer ones are actually interesting because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll just get a group of people who have cancer and then say, what did you eat? And then they'll try to like figure out, um, and you know, the gist of all of this, what matters is that when people are reporting red meat, what they're reporting is, is hamburgers. They're reporting hot dogs. They're reporting, you know, these, like if, if somebody says they went to McDonald's every single day and got a Big Mac, that would be marked as red meat. Um, so, you know, so that's so processed food that is supposedly originated from red meat. Which, you know, is, that's coming with, uh, you know, high, high carbohydrates, a bunch of high processed sodium. ingredients. So yeah, all of these different things. So that's kind of the, that's the biggest thing is that we, there's, there's really weak evidence in that, in that saturated fat, uh, red meat is actually bad for you. And if we look at, um, and the thing that I always like to, to say too, is that I think what's better to look at is, you know, people talk about looking ancestrally, and I think that there's some value into that, but I think, you know, even taking a step further and just looking at what's natural. I think that when we're talking about looking at foods in, as a whole, we should give the benefit of the doubt to what's natural. If we don't know, if we don't have clear evidence that red meat is bad for us. And what we do know is that red meat has a ton of nutrients that are better absorbed by us as humans. Um, they don't have anything that's like significantly contributing to chronic disease. Um, you know, there's no sugar in there. Um, you know, it doesn't, red meat doesn't directly increase your cholesterol or your LDL like people think. So, um, even if that was a factor, doesn't necessarily mean that red meat's bad. So if we look at, and there, none of these things exist and humans have ate it forever, then, you know, to, to look at it and say, that's bad for you, but seed oils and fake meat burgers and all these other things are, are good for humans, things that have existed for you know, at the most, if in the case of seed oils, like 50, 60 years for fake meat, you know, five years um, to give the benefit of the doubt to those things because they don't contain the saturated fat thing that everybody's scared about. Um, but there's nothing natural about it. Like, I think we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the natural. Um, now, some people will say that that's not enough and that we need more science. But um, the truth is, is that we just, you know, to get the study that you want to tell you that red meat is safe, um, it's pretty impractical to get a, a real study that would actually show you that. Um, but what we can do is we can look at human biochemistry. We can look at what happens when we actually consume red meat, um, what our body does with the nutrients. Um, and, and I think that can help us make the decision. And the other thing too, is like, you know, we talk about saturated fat cholesterol, it gets demonized. You know, that really is the issue here, right? What people are worried about when they're talking about red meat is it's saturated fat and it's cholesterol. And what everybody forgets is that these two uh, nutrients, because they are nutrients, are very important to the body. They play a huge role in hormone production. Your brain needs cholesterol. Um, so, you know, we, we know that having cholesterol deficiencies, whether it's via diet or medications like a statin, ha increase your risk of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia. So, wait, you know, statin does? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Statins. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's, um, you know, and that's, you know, the research on that is also probably probably epidemiological as well, I would have to guess. Um, but yeah, because, you know, if you're, you're cutting down, um, you know, essentially statins work by inhibiting your natural production of, of cholesterol, um, I believe by inhibiting the, um, oh, I forget what the enzyme is now. It's, I'm going to have to dig too far back into my biochemistry to get it. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, there's, there's some, you know, evidence that's, that says that there is an increased risk of things like um, Alzheimer's and dementia from, uh, taking those drugs. So we know it's not a great thing to lower cholesterol. Um, so, you know, again, that's a long winded way of saying that, like, it's more about that the evidence isn't there. And if the evidence isn't there, and we know that there's a lot that red meat has to offer that's beneficial for us, um, then I think we have to side with what's natural and what's been around and what humans have ate forever 
uh, until we can find, you know, a better reason to not eat those things. Yeah, I think I get to interview all these doctors, scientists, and cool people in this health and fitness industry, all made possible because of this podcast that is funded by the company I work for, which is Health Via Modern Nutrition or HVMN. And it is not that they pay me to do this, but I genuinely love and believe in the product Ketone IQ. I use it every day before my podcast, before my workout, or even after my workout for recovery. There hasn't been a single supplement that can give me such a drastic change in subjective feel within minutes as much as Ketone IQ has. For those of you who do not know me, I'm from Malaysia, I got my PhD from the UK, and my passion is in science and chronic diseases, and I believe it is all about transparency, scientific integrity, and about sharing with everyone so that everyone can benefit from it. And if you like this content and our work, please do support us by liking, leaving a review, or sharing with your friends and families, or even buying a shot of Ketone IQ at any Sprouts nationwide in the US, and the first shot is on us. Just scan the QR code and you'll get your money back for your first shot. You can also use the code HVMNPOD20, that is H-V-M-N-P-O-D 20, and get 20% off your first purchase at the HVMN website. I think that's a good point is then it's a very rational point as to looking at the history of food industry and the industrialization of processed foods as well and when does all of these chronic diseases pop up and really go on the rise is really you know between maybe like 50 years ago or so um and that's when all these foods and 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 really calorie dense food that was made to feed people rather than make people healthy is just to really meet meet the um food demand that that was lacking because of the wars and everything and essentially looking at just you know the emergence of those and then the emergence of these chronic diseases we can see a better correlation compared to whole food, red meat or whole, whole meats in general that we have been consuming since, you know, nomadic um, human beings um, and hunters. That, yeah. And that's a great point that you bring up there, though, is like the, the calorie density part of it. And this is something that Dr. Gustin, Anthony Gustin is, you know, he, he was always a proponent of this and it really stuck with me is that, again, sticking on the natural trend here, like what what's natural, where else in nature does a a bunch of carbs and fat exist in the same food right where where does sugar and saturated fat in a combination exist in nature where does you know the amount of linoleic acid that you get in seed oils for instance what in nature like one cup of corn oil is something like 80 ears of corn right or something like that uh, i don't know if that's an exact don't quote me on but something like that where it's like these these things these foods that have been introduced to us during the industrial industrialization of of our food system don't exist in nature in any like we don't see these nutrient combinations anywhere so it's really hard to say oh saturated fat is bad when not many people are consuming saturated fat by them by itself people are consuming saturated fat with sugar with grains with all these other things so you make a great point that it's it's the calorie density of foods that comes from a combination of carbohydrates in the fat exactly there's no point to you know single one food group out and then villainize it and then call it a day because we all know that on an you know daily basis unless you're on an elimination diet like carnivore diet we know that most people would consume a mixture of different foods and most often than not because of the convenience as well as the pricing uh, of these calorie dense hyperpalatable foods it's much more accessible compared to whole foods which are organic which you know it's it's really ironic that foods that have the 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 shorter ingredient list would be the more expensive ones the foods that are naturally grown that are the more expensive ones the foods that are without additives without pesticides use are also the, the more expensive ones it's almost like that the industry is not incentivized to make healthier foods more accessible and therefore pushing towards a healthier human civilization as a whole mm -hmm. yeah and a lot of that you know it's it's 
It's funny that you said that too, because I think Tom, I think it was Thomas DeLauer posted about that recently where he was like, you know, why am I paying more for less uh, when you compare like processed foods to, to non-processed foods? Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it is an interesting observation. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to shelf stability is really what's going on there. It's like, you, you know, as a grocery store, you know um, that, or, or as, as a, somebody who's selling to a grocery store, you, you know that a product can sit on the shelf um, you know, for a long time and, and you, you know, you have plenty of time to, to get rid of that. Whereas, you know, some of these other foods, like they got to go quick, like you got to move them or else you're going to be losing your money on those things. Um, which I'm sure plays a big role in, in changing the cost on it, but it does create a, a big challenge for a lot of people because, you know, if you're a family and you have, you know, many people, well, you know, or if you're single and you know, whatever it is, like it is expensive. Eggs are $12 a carton now. Um, you know, meat isn't cheap, but, the one thing that I do always say to a lot of people is that if you look at the cart of somebody who's eating a whole food diet versus the cart of somebody who's not eating a whole food diet, there's a lot of garbage that's not in that whole food diet cart that, you know, if you don't have soda in your cart and you don't have chips and you don't have cereal and all these things that like are cheap, but they add up, you know, sometimes you find out that like, if you just go to the store and you buy meat, eggs, and you know, if you're doing a mixed diet, you know, some vegetables and stuff, like you can go to a farmer's market and get your vegetables for the week for $15. Like my family, there's three, you know, with three of us, $15 and you can get those things. Um, you know, if, but if you go to the grocery store and you get two boxes of cereal and two bags of chip, you know, you're getting up there. So I always do tell people that too, that like, you'd be surprised the other areas in which you save, um, you know, acutely when you grocery shop from, from switching to a whole food diet. So carnivore reset, let's talk a little bit about carnivore reset. Why, why the name? What is it about? Um, let's go from there. Yeah, so I do. I got a little copy here that can show. I got. I think I got you a, a digital one, but I gotta get you a full, uh, real one so you can have with, it with a with a full signature. You know, when you're famous it's, and rich, it's worth I... less. It's worth less than. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the the carnivore reset the the title came from. Um, I kind of explained it a little bit, you know, earlier, but uh, this idea that the carnivore diet can be used to reset your digestive system and in some ways to also, you know, provide a reset metabolically as well. But the focus of this book is more on on the gut health. Um, and this was initially a program that I had put out a couple of years ago um, that was, you know, just a little bit of information and then the protocol was with it. Um, but I decided that I wanted to, you know, turn it into a more robust resource and, and put some more information on it. So, you know, the way the book kind of goes is that we start off um, educating on the basics of gut health. So just trying to lay the foundation of some of those things I talked about, like intestinal barriers, leaky gut, gut microbiome, and then all of the things that can be potentially harmful to the gut. Um, so, you know, not just diet, but environmental factors, um, you know, smoking, drinking, all, all of the different things. Um, that, that can play a role. We, we break all of those down. And then, then we get into the plant compounds specifically and the impact that those have on digestion. So that's where we cover the things that you probably hear about, you know, the anti-nutrient category of uh, lectins and oxalates and uh, FODMAPs and, uh, you know, fructose and all of these different things. And we just talk about, you know, here's the research that we have. Here's what we know these things can do mechanistically in the body. Here's the research we have on when people start eating these things and when they cut them out. Um, there's actually a surprising amount of research on, on a lot of those things. I think Paul Saladino spoke a bit on those as well. And I, I saw I saw quite a lot of uh, uh, fiery arguments on, on the comments. Yeah, and we can get it. I would actually love to talk about too, because that is a big debate. And, um, you know, I, I through going through the research, I did change my opinion on this. I was less um, on the camp of avoiding these things um, than I am now. So I do want to get into that. Um, but yeah, so we, we cover all of those things to, and the reason why that's important is because what a lot of people will find, uh, you hear a lot of stories is that people find that there's specific plant compounds that they have issues with. Uh, and when you know that, then you can cut those things out. So if you, again, if you realize that oxalates are the thing that are driving you crazy, you can cut that out. Uh, you can figure out which foods are, are most rich in those and, and you can get rid of them. So that's why we want to go through that. Um, See, and then my, my problem, my problem with that point is, sorry, Chris, to cut you off. I want to catch you here right, real quick, because we were talking earlier, looking at ancestral, like how humans have been eating, um, red meat have been eating whole foods, right? Similarly, 
you know, from when we started growing crops, humans have also been eating, you know, the simple vegetables that also may contain all these um, compounds. Why is it that now suddenly we are sensitive or intolerant towards these compounds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I think one, this isn't the best, um, there's a better answer for it, but at least one of the things playing a factor is the amount, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like our, our ancestors, you know, for them to get, you know, if they were going to go find a plant and eat it, they would have eaten a bunch of it in a short period of time. And then they probably wouldn't have had much after that. Right. Or, you know, they, they just in general would have been typically operating in a calorie deficit. So the sheer amount is more. Um, but more important than that is it's the baseline gut health of individuals today versus our ancestors. So again, carnivore diet, doing a carnivore reset for somebody who has a great digestive system, not necessarily like for me personally, I don't have an issue with oxalates. I don't have an issue with lectins. Um, you know, I, I generally don't really like sugar or how that makes me feel, but most of those plant comp- compounds, I don't have an issue with. Um, but it's the people that have those severe conditions that is where that really becomes a problem. If you have leaky gut, then these, these can become a problem, right? If you have SIBO, having a lot of fiber can be a problem, right? So it's, it's in these people who are operating in a disease state, which isn't so different than I think if we look at like keto um, for, you know, diabetes, I think would be a good example of it. Like for people who don't have diabetes and who are metabolically healthy, having a bunch of fruit, for instance, um, is not going to be a problem for those people, right? Because they have a body that can handle that. But for somebody who has type two diabetes, crushing grapes all day, uh, which are, you know, really high in sugar, not going to be the best for them. And I think that's the same story with these plant compounds is for these people who have hyperactive immune systems, um, you know, who have, uh, you know, some sort of whether it's a structural issue with their gut, or it's, a, you know, gut microbiome dysfunction, any of those things, that's where these things really become a problem. And, and if we look at, again, the causes of, you know, because one of the things I try to make very clear in the book is that I my position is not that eating broccoli your whole life has messed up your gut and now you need to cut it out or that, or that even that these compounds are the cause of your issue, the cause of their issue, these issues are if, you know, one of the stories I give in the book is like a friend who, you know, was like a, went through college and was like, had went into college with like maybe a slight gluten um, intolerance, like didn't handle it super well, but then spent their whole college drinking alcohol all the time, um, not working out, um, you know, using all kinds of beauty products and everything and all these like toxins that they're exposing themselves to, um, also not eating a great diet, crushing a bunch of seed oils, all of those things. And then that problem became exacerbated because of those factors, which are all things our ancestors would have never experienced. Most likely our ancestors, unless they picked up some sort of bacteria in, in their environment would have had pretty awesome guts and would have been able to tolerate almost anything. Um, you know, would have been able to tolerate even some of these, these foods that are a little bit harsher if they're not cooked, probably would have been able to tolerate those things pretty well. So we're just operating today at a, at a different baseline um, than, you know, than what our ancestors were. Yeah, that's fair. So um, if people want to look for citations and references for these studies, um, are they available in the book as well? Yep. Yep. At the back of the book, I break it down by chapter. So each chapter has um, a list of all the, yeah, of all. So in the chapters, I put a little note uh, next to where we talk about a study and then you can go back to the back and you can see all of the studies in there, um, which again, surprisingly, there's quite a bit of stuff. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, similar to like what we have to do with exogenous ketones and a lot of other things, sometimes we have to make some logic jumps because of gaps in the research. Um, but I always try to point that out when it does exist. Um, you know, like we see some really interesting things with fiber, for instance, where, you know, some groups that are dealing with severe constipation and, you know, SIBO and things like that, they cut out fiber and they see incredible improvements, um, you know, in, in their health. But there's also, you know, what, what else were they cutting out of their diet by just focusing on their diet in general, right? So there's definitely limitations to a lot of these things, but I was surprised with the amount of research that does exist looking at this. Um, but one of the things again, that I'll, that I should really point out is that not a, like, we don't have research looking at a carnivore diet in, well, I shouldn't say we don't, we actually do have some interesting research from like Dr. Gundry and some other folks. Um, but we don't have a lot of research looking at a carnivore diet in individuals with autoimmune conditions and poor gut health. But what we do has have is we have a lot of research looking at the impact of fiber on these individuals, the impact of polyphenols on these individuals, 
um, you know, the impact of oxalates and, and lectins and those things. And from there, it's kind of like that combination of we have all this anecdotal evidence uh, that exists. And here's my best guess and interpretation based on the available research of why those people are experiencing them. So, um, so yeah, there's quite a bit of science that went into it. Nice. I mean, we all love a little bit of, uh, you know, citation and reference. Um, I think people are more and more aware and more informed in the way that they learn to go back to the source of the information, the study, and let the people read, right? Let the people know whether it's epidemiology study, is it a controlled trial? Is it a specifically, you know, molecular biology where we're looking at mechanism of action? I think those are very important points where it's just not you and I, Chris and Lat, just talking BS and, and we need people to go out there, do your own research as much as it is convenient for us to talk about it, break it down for you. Don't take our words for it because at the end of the day, it's your health. It's in your hands, right? No matter how much I tell you something is bad, something is good, you should eat this. You should know your body better than any anyone. Like for example, like I myself, I tried low carb for the longest time. I have done intermittent fasting for the longest time. I felt great. Um, I, I have lost weight, but I've hit a plateau. It's because my body got used to it. And then guess what? Now what I'm doing, I'm doing carb cycling. I'm literally like today, I'm eating 350 grams of carbs. That's how much carbs I'm taking today. And then tomorrow I'm going back down to 130 grams. And I've been doing this for the past few weeks. And every week I've lost two pounds consistently, like predictably. Whereas if I'm just going on a low carb diet or on calorie restriction, there is only so much my body can tolerate before it lowers my metabolism to match the intake of food and it will just store it. And on top of that, with my genetics that hasn't got good um, insulin uh, response, my insulin just overreacts and puts everything into storage as soon as I eat it rather than burning it for energy and increasing my metabolism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that's a great point though, because like the... So, you know, one of the things that I've realized over the last couple of years is that, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of research. I read it as much as I can, but what's becoming very obvious now is that it's hard to trust a lot of the research that's out there. A lot of the research that exists now has, you know, very deep industry funding. You know, we looked like the hot topic right now, the vegan twin study that uh, got the, uh, the documentary on Netflix. Um, you know, the lead doctor on that has a organization that's funded by Beyond Meat, right? So there's like, we have a lot of issues. And what I always tell people is that, you know, what matters most is what happens in real life. Like you just gave your story. You don't need a study to tell you that carb cycling works for weight loss. When you've lost two pounds every week for the last however many weeks, you know that it works. And that's why, you know, I think what, like what you're getting at there is like being your, like doing your research on yourself, doing your own research and figuring out what works best for you. Like, you know, I always tell people like with keto, you know, we go back to keto. So if somebody loses 75 pounds on keto and they feel great, they have more energy than they've ever had. They now go to the gym. They never had the energy for that anymore. They're in a better mood. They got off of, you know, their anxiety medication. Do we need a study to tell us that that's a good thing? Like, no, I think that like, we're probably pretty good with knowing that like that really worked for them. And that was a good thing. So I think that's the same thing with like carnivore and things like that. Like, you know, if you're waiting, if you're waiting for that randomized controlled trial to come in and tell you that carnivore is great for whatever issue it is that you have, um, that's not going to happen. Um, but what you can do is you can give it a try for two weeks and it's not going to hurt you. Um, so you can see, you know, what it does. So yeah, I you, think that you, like do, doing it your way is, is the way. You know, you know what it is. People are waiting for that study, not because they want a definite answer or conclusive answer, whether or not it works. They're waiting for that study so that they can talk shit about it and argue on internet. That's what it is. You know, yes. that's where the attention, the market attention market is. But I think I, I definitely going through this experience of carb cycling, it, it baffled me because I always thought my body was really, really glucose intolerant. And it was in the beginning. I, I, I go on high carb for a day. I'll gain four pounds four pounds in two days. Like my body just doesn't know what to do with it. But after training my body for a while, it baffles me that I have been eating the same calorie. Like I track it very, very closely. I've been eating the same, same calorie on low, low carbs day, like 130 grams of carbs, 170 grams of protein every day. Uh, do the same workout, lifting four days, cardio three days, and then um, 
once a week, I'll do high carb. Nothing changed, right? But I, my weight is going down. I'm like, don't you need a calorie deficit to go down? Because it has been the same calorie intake. So I'm like trying, I'm still trying to understand on the science part of it. I've, I've searched, I literally went on PubMed last night and this morning. Every now and again, I'll do a sweep and just to see, are, are there any studies on this? Um, there are none. There are none. Like when I search for intermittent carb intake or carb cycling, there are some research on cycling, um, not necessarily carb cycling. Uh, so I, I haven't found any yet to really understand it. I mean, the, the general idea is that you are generally on calorie deficit, but on high carb days, you're basically tricking your body to understand that you're not going through hunger, you're not going through famine, therefore there's no need to put a halt onto your metabolism. And then you go back down to low carb days. And then with the higher metabolism, you are creating that calorie deficit by increasing your basal metabolic rate instead of by decreasing your calorie intake. Uh, that's as far as I got. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing too, I always think is funny, like, this is what I love about the calorie debate is that it's so everybody's so like kind of simple minded with it. Um, and that they look at, it's like, you have to be in a calorie deficit to lose weight. So that's all that matters. Right. And it's like, yes, you do have to be in a calorie deficit, but we also have to understand that what we eat plays a big role on how our metabolism functions. Right. So it's like, like if, for instance, if you look at studies, uh, there was a, I forget the author of the, of the publication, so I'll, I'll have to send it over to you, but there was a study, you know, it's probably been 10 years now where they looked at, I believe it was in women and it was low carb dieting and, um, healthy women with healthy BMI, BMI was a marker, so not great, but healthy BMI versus high BMI and the women with the healthy BMI, they did not see, uh, is, is much improvement following a keto diet versus the women that had high BMI you know, they were, they were more likely to see benefit from it. And like, what we have to understand is that like everything that you eat has downstream effects on your hormones, on your mitochondrial function, all of those things. So yes, calorie deficit matters, but if you're eating foods that allow your metabolism to function in a better way, you can be in a calorie deficit still by eating more calories than maybe you were before because you're still in a calorie deficit, right? Like your body's just like, you know, you could find like there, there's a difference between a diet of 1300 calories made up of a certain amount of foods and a diet of 1800 calories made up of a certain amount of foods. And you may find that you burn more calories on that 1800 calorie diet because of the downstream effects of the foods that you're actually eating. So I think that's the thing that I think people need to keep in their minds that food is not just like eat food, energy or fat, you know, store as fat or use as energy. It's like the food you eat, you know, protein is what allows everything in your cells to function, right? Like the hormone insulin is a powerful hormone. Um, cortisol is crazy. Like, you know, how do you measure calorie deficit in somebody who is feeling like super chill? They have a, uh, an easy job, no kids versus somebody who is, you know, driving to work in New York City in traffic to a job that they hate. You know, like, do you think that's going to have an impact on like, do you think that person at 1200 calories is going to burn the same amount of calories as if that person was put on a beach in Costa Rica and they're chilling, like, no, it's going to be different things. So um, that's what I always hate about that debate is it's like, it's like people be like, Oh, calories are all that matter. And I'm like, okay. Right. And your point, <laughs> what do we do with that? Yeah. Anymore? No, I think fundamentally like calories, it, it does matter. Right. Yep. But at the Absolutely. end of the day, Absolutely. it's also the quality it's, you know, it, it is this signaling like, um, I, th I remember my PhD supervisor was telling me a few years ago, it's like the hot topic then, I think now even more so as we understand metabolism more is that metabolites act as signaling agents within the cell. It affects the transcription um, and translation processes within the DNA itself um, and then have a downstream effect on just the, the assembly of the proteins and the um, triggering of different pathways, as well as, you know, upregulating and downregulating all different pathways as well. So um, one last question about um, carnivore diet, uh, carnivore diet. Has, there been, has there been any studies that looked at carnivore diet and insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, I would say? Um, has, it, has it been anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. Um, 
No, not that I mean, you know, I'm sure there's yeah, been because some... we know like keto diet is very effective with, you know, diabetes, pre-diabetes and people reversing the condition as well as going off medication. Um, I'm just wondering if carnivore diet has uh, similar studies. Um, you know, yeah, we, we don't. And, you know, a lot of people would actually say that it is probably bad for insulin sensitivity, um, mm -hmm. but they're basing that off of research that's looking at high amount of saturated fat in red meat in conjunction with a standard American diet, not a carnivore diet, right? Um, because, you know, there is an ability for saturated fat and fat to impair a cell's ability to respond to insulin. You know, there is a mechanism at play there. Um, but for that to happen, there also needs to be the, the downstream effects of, of consuming a lot of carbohydrates and sugar with it. Um, so we don't have like, we don't have anything that's looking at just carnivore. Like the, the amount of studies that we have looking at specifically a carnivore diet is very low. A lot of it, you know, a lot of, if you see people that are putting out things against carnivore, what it is, is it's, it's studies on red meat and saturated fat, which again are in, in the, the text of a whole diet of, you know, a bunch of other things, not just those things. So unfortunately we don't. Um, <clears throat> but I, you know, and, and to be honest, you don't hear as many anecdotal stories of people using it for insulin resistance um, or anything. I'm, you know, I'm sure those things are out there. I'd, I'd be curious to see if Rivero, uh, Sean Baker's company, if they've had anybody that they've treated with it, um, because you're right. I mean, I, you know, the similarity between carnivore and keto is that they are both, um, you know, in, they're going to lower insulin, they're going to lower blood sugar, and they're going to spike ketones. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I would, my theory would be, uh, that carnivore would be, would lead to an improvement if you were coming again from a standard American diet. Now, if you were doing keto and you switched to carnivore, probably not going to see a, a, as big of a difference, or even if you were doing low carb, but if you're coming from standard American diet, um, you know, based on what I've seen, I would, I would think that, but I exactly. think we should, we should be looking at that. I, I, that's a great point because the whole, I think to, to sum, sum it up, you know, our conversation today is that when we look at research, um, one thing that I, I remember very clearly from my PhD days is that my supervisor always, always asked me if I say, if I wrote down there in my thesis, GLUT1, you know, glucose transporter 1 is increased. She will always ask me, compared to what? In science, whatever study it is, you have to look at compared to what? So same thing what you said, right? If you're coming off a standard American diet, going onto a carnivore diet, fine, you see that significant difference. But if that person has already been on keto diet or that person is of a normal weight and whatnot, the difference may be insignificant. So when you go through a study, make sure you know what are, what are they comparing with and how does that apply personally to you as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's important because it goes both ways. Like a lot of the vegan vegetarian diets that show improvements um, even a lot of the keto studies that show improvements are typically comparing to standard American diet, you know, cause that's what they can get. You're not typically, it's almost like anything is better than standard American right. diet. And that's, you know, that is there, there's actually a book that I've been working on over the last couple of years is like, it's called why diets work. Uh, and you know, talking about how, you know, there's a lot of different diets that work. Um, that's going to be, you know, the next, the next one that I put out. And one of the things about that is that like, yeah, anything is better than the standard American diet. Like, you will definitely see if you stopped eating McDonald's and you started eating broccoli, there's at least going to be a period of time where you are going to see significant improvements in your health. Um, and we would expect the same from carnivore. Like you were going to see some improvements, um, you know, switching from standard American diet to carnivore. So we do have to make sure not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we need to not, you know, think that these diets are necessarily miracle diets because in a lot of cases, over 50% of the benefits that you're getting from them are what they're not. Um, but in the case of carnivore for gut health specifically, um, there is also that benefit of what it is. But again, to your point, it depends on if you need that or not. Yeah, exactly. So for those people who would like to find your book, where can they find it? And what, uh, for those who would like to know more and follow you, where can they find you? Yeah. So the book is available on, uh, Amazon. I'll hold it up again. It's carnivore reset. Uh, so you can find it on Amazon. The right now, just the paperback is available, but um, probably by the time this episode airs, the, the Kindle will be available as well. Um, and then, yeah, to, to find out you know, more about me uh, at the ketologist on social media, primarily Instagram is where I hang out. Um, and then for carnivore, I actually have, so I have two newsletters. Um, you know, one is the thinking health newsletter, which is a part of the, my podcast thinking health. 
And then I have another newsletter that I started for carnivore specifically. Uh, and for this book, actually, we're, we're doing a um, book club for this month for anybody who bought the book, they're in there. And we're doing, you know, weekly content related to the book. And that's called the carnivores den. Um, so you can check those out. Those are all on uh, Substack. Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, thanks for well, having me on. Well, it has been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, I loved it, man. Thanks for having me on. And uh, definitely want to come back. I think we got, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about ketones much, but uh, the the ketone IQ that, you, that uh, just arrived in my house a few weeks ago, I, I've been playing basketball without it for the last probably two months. I just started taking it again this week and forgot how much I love that stuff. So we'll have to <laughs> talk about that next time. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and you know, with the amount of research that you've done, I've always told Chris this, I mean, you should get a PhD by now. <laughs> like you should have. If they, unless they hand me one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going is there, back. Is there no intention whatsoever? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think that to this point, I've kind of reached um, the point in my career where I don't think the benefit would be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, I, you know, I actually, I should take that back. I think in a later on in life, um, I could see myself, you know, kid, kids are growing up out of the house. I could see myself going back and doing it for that reason. Um, but for now, uh, you know, family and, and, you know, writing books and stuff is enough for me. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak to you and hopefully see you next time. Yep. Sounds good, Lat. Thanks, man.